Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. I was 13. I'll grow, I thought. These are men, and they know what they're doing. This program features the work of 2015 writer Claire Johnson. Curator Kevin Kraft sat down with her for an interview. So, I'd like to start by figuring out how or where did your writing life begin? um, Well, I think that it began in elementary school. Like a lot of people, you know, you're told to write stories in elementary school, and I got really ambitious. I actually, a few years ago, found my old spiral notebooks from that time, uh, which are pretty hilarious. I had some really uh, long novels in my head uh, that I was writing, but I never finished any of them. And and I wrote some stuff in high school, like many people do. And then college, um, it just kind of started to click. I uh, I went to Brown. I made the decision not to go to art school, even though I always knew I wanted to do art. And um, going to Brown instead of going to art school was really a blessing for my writing because uh, I just right from the beginning started taking sometimes two or three classes each semester in the creative writing department, and it was just incredible. Hmm. Where did you grow up? Uh, in Seattle. Oh, you grew up here? Yeah. You're yeah, a hometown kid. Hill, yeah. Mm-hmm. What made you decide to go so far east to school if you were a child of the Northwest and then even further east for more schooling? Yeah. I had this idea that college would be this great time to explore another place and live in another place without having to stay there forever. I knew that this was where I imagined myself long term. And it seemed like, oh, college is a good way to, you know, have another experience. I wasn't particularly attached to the idea of the East Coast, but um, I really liked that there were no course requirements at Brown and um, that it had a good reputation. And I could easily have ended up in Pittsburgh as well and ended up tossing a coin to decide which college to go to. But I did always have an interest in England. Um, I've always liked stuff that was coming out of England creatively. I listened to a ton of bands from England when I was in middle school and high school and kind of growing up here. I read a lot of literature from England as a, as a kid. England is a great place to go to school as an artist because the galleries are free. Uh, there's just like these amazing museums for free and all this stuff going on. So um, it's hard to be an artist there in a lot of ways, but being an art student was great. But that's how I ended up so far away. But uh, it was hard. I get really attached to other places. I miss England, but I also spent so much of my time in college and grad school and living in England. I had so much homesickness. But it's interesting because homesickness became this huge aesthetic in my work, both my writing and my art. Um, I'm always preoccupied by the feeling that there are all these times and places happening simultaneously and that you're stuck in one even as your mind is not. And you can feel two or three or four so simultaneously and so vividly without being able to 
do anything about it. Is that what you mean? I noticed on your website, uh, part of an artist statement that you say, we can only exist in one time and place, both that that, that is an ordinary truth, but it's also a tragic one. And is that what you mean by the tragedy of that, the, uh, the fact that you can feel this multiplicity but only exist in one example of it at a time? Yeah, yeah. It sounds melodramatic sometimes, but it breaks my heart that I can't be back, even just in something as mundane as my elementary school building. And it's something completely ordinary and happens to everyone. And yet it was this huge part of my life, and I can still remember the feel of it so vividly, but I can't actually go there. I can't be there. And it's just... Um, both with time and place, I think it is. there are these losses for us and that it is such an ordinary thing that we don't really talk about it or examine it much together. So, yeah, that's, that is what I mean. Mm. I'm reminded, I mean, the vision is, is profound. You say it's ordinary, but it is profound in a sense, too, to be able to feel those possibilities dwelling still within you as opposed to most people just kind of moving on with their lives and you know I mean that's the the receptivity of the artist um, I'm thinking a lot of Schopenhauer as you talk about the troubled possibilities of a life and and the, the his idea that life is always trouble and it is about loss and ma- and accepting loss after loss after loss and learning to live with that like only death is no trouble at all right you know and i offer that back to you as a way of saying that it is uh, profound in the sense that one must learn to use that awareness uh, in a productive way. And that does seem to come out in your work in in a variety of voices that kind of overlap or intersect with each other. Um, so maybe now is a good time to hear some of that work. Why don't you read a poem? Sure. Yeah, I will say, as I was preparing for this I and thinking about what you're saying about the multiple voices, this has been really interesting for me because... As I've been learning more about reading my work aloud, I've realized that I completely design my work to be read on a page because of that idea of multiple voices and multiple things being true at the same time. It's really hard for me to preserve that as it's being spoken by just my voice or even if I had other people reading things just one voice at a time, because when I think of my writing, I think many of the words I can tell, they're they're mostly being spoken by this one voice, but at the same time, they're also being spoken by another voice or my voice, or they're in my head as well as being someone else's voice. And I love that about writing. Uh, I love listening to people read too, but, but I find that uh, for my work, I, I always feel a little disappointed when I read it out loud, and it's not having that multiple layer layered existence anymore. So um, I just thought I would say that right now while I was thinking of it because it's, yeah. it's been a learning thing for me. That's great. So, yeah, I'll read um, this short piece. 
Uh, It's called Stockings. Our day in the garden, the photo, the laughter exploding out of our secret mouths, quiet, lazy afternoons where a secret is not a secret. I'm looking out only at you. You are the only thing out here for me. We spend the day tramping grass in stockinged feet, unlaced and the new short sleeves. A warm enough day. Skirts shorter now and summer dresses now. I feel your toes through our stockings, my toes. You rush at me and in a laughing joke, a game and fun, but it's our whole lives. Grabbing your bare elbow as our picnic topples around us. I want your life and my life like black stockings drying by the stove. Play at house in our own house. No one can tell us apart. Fuzz of your hair in my laughing face. We'll tell our mothers no. I'm not in love with anyone. That's nice. And this is from a current project that you're working on? Yeah. From Tell us a little bit more about that project. Well, I have for years off and on been working on a project called Will I Live Here When I Grow Up? It's a mixture of recording things that I've heard through my family, um, kind of family histories, family stories, things that my relatives say over and over again, but also a mixture of that with imagined pasts and my own feelings or experiences kind of all jumbled together with these generations of voices and trying to preserve the gaps that happen with family histories, not just my own, but um, just the way that some stories get told over and over again. But when you examine them, you don't really know what someone meant by one thing, or you don't know what happened right before or after this story. You don't know if, I don't know if Grandma Kitty's version of this story is correct or if Aunt Beverly's version is correct, you know, or am I even remembering it correctly? And for me, it the the so-called incorrect versions are just as interesting and true as the correct ones because we all have our own our own feelings of of the history of something. So um, so sometimes in my writing, I'm looking back and imagining a very particular time period and a and a person that I imagine there, whether it's someone based on someone from my family history or someone from another person's family history or someone I've seen in a photograph or or if it's telling an actual piece of history sometimes. So sometimes I'm imagining something like that, but other times I'm jumbling it all together and spanning you know, centuries <laughs> with the voices that are happening um, because that's how I feel when I'm in a given place. Um, They're almost like core samples of time, right, where you drill down into the ice and you bring out the, the history of a place. And... That's a great way of looking at it, core samples, yeah. Now we'll hear a selection from Claire's live reading. Barn dance. In that time, mostly no school, mostly men in the land rush, they were giving away lots. Then you might come by train, but then what? A woman. You would have brought someone, women few, land, a fortune and a future, rough and new, the world brutal in its shrinking bigness. 
two girls homesteading. The two of you a promise just for now. You look at her like a foreign future and no one asks because it never happens. It's a fact. Everyone gets married. She leaves you smiling across a split log floor. She smiles at you. All the moments in her lap for now came from England in her mother's lap. Where is England? Perhaps there is no floor. I hear she met her husband at a barn dance. Later, you are a school teacher. You are 18 years grown and homesteading a home together. You are both grown old together at 25 before this part is over. You slip into history and stay 18 forever. Someone's memory. Now there are streets with paving and a doctor. Now it's a town. Now the town has moved or disappeared, and you say nothing. It was nothing. <laughs> the town. We must have thought this valley in our heads, a paradise of land or where our parents took us to. The next place, and we stayed there. Colorado just a late night dream of what childhood was, Prosser or Missouri or Moraville, just places disappearing. Words the baby sister doesn't care about. She looks at you unblinking and moves on toward mother. The place you were born, you'll never go back there. We moved everyone around and we were told where to go, tucked it under our skirts and smoothed our hair under bonnets. Or did we forget, now it's straw hats and lace collars, or hair in short curls and farm girls all. We are laughing and loose-limbed, the bonnets, just our grandmas. She wouldn't be caught dead in it now. A proper woman with scrubbed floors and no worries, no worries. Her face was gentle before I knew her, but life is not. Stop talking of that. I guess you have to know it'll turn out fine. It's so grand to see you after all this time, when is the next time? Well, what a grand life. I could use a hand with this laundry, see. We stare at each other and the summer scenery and the laundry. Let's do it together. It always shocks me when she cries. She doesn't do it anymore. It's like she's forgotten anyone is leaving. Farm girls all, or the general store, or at the bulk merchandise. She worked for her board and room above the post office. Mother was a pianist and more interested in drama than housework. Mother was a true pioneer woman and made do. While she was a fine cook, my grandma was a fine woman. They were religious ladies. She was a lady photographer passing through towns, we think, and competent as a man. They held a Sunday school for us girls. I went to Sunday school for the pamphlets. See, we had no library. I wanted to read. Oh, electricity. No, just the blacksmiths. In 1942, the grade school burned down, and, well, I think there were 10 of us graduating, but, see, they went to war. The winters, we stayed in town at our sister's place. They all had children before I was grown old enough. My mother is a woman with roads all over her and brittle. They wouldn't recognize 
He died before I was born, I think. Only one brother in the end. My, he was funny. On lucky school days, we hitched a ride to th on the dairy wagon. It was a car or a truck. I'm getting it wrong. If you were good and delivered it, stop walking. Did your mother laugh at the baby? And was the house always white like that? When she disappeared into her older, meaner self, and when you disappeared too, we must have thought this valley, green and all trees and cattle, hills and flat like paradise, like where we're stopping. We tucked ourselves away, and it was a fun town to grow up in. Were there trees in the floor of it? Did the miners die out as the century? That town doesn't exist now. We named this after the last two born. Well, I guess you have to know it will turn out fine. It will turn out the way it will turn out. You say such a good life, and eventually there are no bobbies in the creek and no namesakes now and no head wound. You say it with no smiles and you mean it, mean it. I know there wasn't time. We were too remote. I'm missing relatives. We can see through the walls now. Who was that uncle with the barn? You stayed on the home place but lost your children too. The sternness of it and the plainness of it. What of it? Your sister laughs and laughs. Well, I don't know that we talk too much. And disappearing at the end of the day suddenly. It's so sunny. And the days are so long. Were they all happy and young before I knew them? Did they fool anyone and fool themselves too? Or am I the fool? Life was a fine thing. And you stay at the home place and hope only some. You have relations and a short memory. No need to look them in the eye or think anyone will. You don't need to think anyone. We have grown old with it and been lucky. I swear there is no need. Stop looking at me like something stays here and hurts in my heart. Grown old cousin. The trees were huge and crowded. I don't know what crowds are. Even our few fingers were quiet and lone. I grew up feeling so small, but the other men hoped different, thought their chests were really like barrels, hefty work things at home with the few horses, the few of us. We threw ourselves at trees, slept hard, acted like it was a fair fight, a good match, a way of life, something to move through. Maybe they believed it was a fair match. I felt they did, each loose handful, my first job, my next one, I waited for someone to look up and laugh. I thought, I'll see it in his eyes. We'll kind of shift our limbs down, flex our hands, make a plain look, laugh softly, and I'll see everyone feels small here. Everyone knows it's over. The trees are so big, men are just small. You only get 10 fingers and two feet. Nothing will grow back. 
I was 13 and kind of guiding the horses. I was poaching a little for my mother and brother. I was slight, but I was young. I thought my uncle knew better, my grown old cousin with his wages. I'd get bigger. I was 15 and long-legged. I was 16 and bald-faced. I was 18 and still working, my shoulder a fine enough width. But I looked at those trees, and I always knew. The trunks bigger than three men or crowded up like people I'd never imagined. I looked around now and then and knew I was done for. The other men hoped different and hopped the next freight again and again, sure that they were going somewhere and thinking their bodies were like live wood. But we start with ten fingers if we're lucky, and I never grew after eighteen. Sometimes a man would look me in the eyes and squint, but we never, we never shifted our weight. Jokes were about women, or the first guy, the second guy, the last one. We were not the sad joke. We were not stumbling over logs, along ridges, over branches, into mud, lost and severed like the last man. I looked up and was done for, but what else could I do? I was 13. I'll grow, I thought. These are men, and they know what they're doing. More winters. I had imagined it snowy, a foreign world like usual, where everything stops. We are stuck here. In the winters, what did we wear? I am grown up and have no snow pants. We want to play in the snow. It's business as usual. Thank goodness I'm not stuck in the house. Or it's a danger. Cattle stranded and people stranded. A false hope of mild winters. The kind of mistake I might owe my existence to. It's our dwindling woodpile. Why did we think they'd always be mild? Why did you cut your hair that was so lovely? Grow up in the city now. What do you think when you come back here? I look out from my doorstep at a flat, white world. I think of doctors mired in snowbanks. I think of my son in the group home, hours downriver. I want to fall in love with this here my cautious self relaxed into quiet snow, a girl in calico, an arsenal of relations. He is working near Meadows. I am just taking a vacation. We are doing our best. He sometimes stops his medicines, and the trees get all blue with it. I put my headphones on and prepare for wet toes. This year, there's no snow to speak of. Resort, about empty, not a lot of prospects. I'm buried in it. I have no neighbors. I'm here in my cabin, only one in the whole white world of this. We are struggling. We are nothing like an arsenal. This is my last piece. It's called Stockings. Stockings. Our day in the garden, the photo 
the laughter exploding out of our secret mouths, quiet, lazy afternoons where a secret is not a secret. I'm looking out only at you. You are the only thing out here for me. We spend the day tramping grass in stockinged feet, unlaced and the new short sleeves. A warm enough day, skirts shorter now, and summer dresses now. I feel your toes through our stockings, my toes. You rush at me and in a laughing joke, a game in fun, but it's our whole lives. Grabbing your bare elbow as our picnic topples around us, I want your life and my life like black stockings, drying by the stove, play at house in our own house. No one can tell us apart. Fuzz of your hair in my laughing face. We'll tell our mothers no. I'm not in love with anyone. Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production. The 2015 curator of this program is Kevin Kraft. This episode of Sound Pages was produced by Daniel Gunther and Levi Fuller. Recording engineers are C.J. Lazenby, Tom Stiles, Mo Preventure, Daniel Gunther, and Steve Tatori. Narrator is Alyssa Keene. And executive director of Jack Straw Cultural Center is Joan Rabinowitz. Theme music by St. Helens String Quartet, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, For Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology available for purchase and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>